What happens when a popular rock radio DJ retires, sells everything, and with his wife, takes off in an RV to see America? Ho, ho, ho! It's the Rockin' the RV Life podcast with Jeff and Patty. Join them each week as they share their experiences while giving you advice and tips along the way. Hello, I'm Jeff Kinsbach. And I'm Patty. And we live and travel in our RV since we retired from working. Now, it's been about 21 months, hasn't it, you know, Jeff? We're coming up on two years. I know. Can you believe that? We sold our house and just about everything in it. I couldn't get rid of everything. No. So we have stuff in storage. You but, just got uh, rid of my stuff. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> you know, speaking of time going by fast, for the past couple of weeks, we've been traveling up the west coast of Michigan. The Great Lakes are a lot of fun to explore. Oh, they sure are. And what's really interesting is Michigan touches four of the five Great Lakes. And did you know that? Lake Superior is the coldest and the deepest out of all five. Wow. Its deepest spot is 1,332 feet, and its average depth is 500 feet. Wow, that's pretty deep. Yes, it Compared is. Compared to Lake Erie. Lake Erie's average depth is only 62 feet, and its deepest spot is 210 feet. Yeah, that's quite a difference. Isn't that something? But also, Lake Superior is the biggest. Mm-hmm. All the Great Lakes plus three of Lake Erie's can fit in Lake Superior. That depth and cold temperature are what really preserves a lot of the shipwrecks, which we're going to get to in a few minutes here. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. We crossed the Mackinac Bridge, went up into the Upper Peninsula, and visited Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore. Oh, beautiful, huh? Oh, and you've got to take a boat ride. Yeah. It's the only way to see it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Then we traveled over to Sault Ste. Marie, where we stayed on the St. Mary's River, and watched all the freighters go through the locks. Oh, and I have that app on my phone called Marine Traffic. You've got to get this. Yeah, so we can see where the boats are going, where they're coming from, how big they are, all the statistics. It's really a lot of fun. It really, if you're near water, you need to get that app. Oh yeah, and along the way, we met a lot of people, didn't we? And some told us to visit the Shipwreck Museum and Whitefish Point. Oh, yeah. They were real passionate about mm-hmm. it. Now, if you've ever wanted to get off the so-called beaten path and travel to a remote area, this is for you. It's an hour and a half drive from the Mackinac Bridge. It's an hour and 15 minutes from Sault Ste. Marie, where we were staying. So we decided to do a day trip with the Jeep. I wish we would have taken the RV because there are some really nice state parks in which to camp. Oh, yeah. The beaches are beautiful and they have a lot of driftwood on them. Whitefish Point, Michigan is famous for its lighthouse built in 1849. Yeah, amazing. And Whitefish Point is known as the graveyard of ships. More ships have been lost here than in any other part of that lake. Yep. Many were lost due to collisions. Mm -hmm. Those occurred before radar and GPS tracking were ever invented. And there was much more ship traffic on the lakes back then as well. But the most notable in recent years is the wreck of the 728-foot-long freighter, the Edmund Fitzgerald. That happened just 17 miles northwest of the Shipwreck Museum in Whitefish Point, Michigan. And it happened on November 10th, 1975 in a really fierce storm. The entire 29-man crew was lost, and it's a story that you're gonna learn a lot more about here. The Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum 
is part of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society, Now, too. that was founded in 1978 by a group of eight divers with the idea of exploring historic shipwrecks in eastern Lake Superior near Whitefish Point, Michigan. And it all started with a research vessel that they still use today. They're a well-respected nonprofit organization. They search and document shipwrecks, and the majority of shipwrecks, believe it or not, have not been found. But last year, their research vessel actually actually discovered nine new wrecks, with one dating back to 1865. And the society, along with the state of Michigan, preserve and protect these historical sites. Yeah, they work with the National Geographic Society, the Canadian Navy, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Discovery and History Channels, and many state and local government agencies. Jeff and I spent about two hours going through the museum and the lighthouse. Oh, it was incredible. It was. And they even play the Gordon Lightfoot song. Yeah, uh-huh. absolutely. Yeah, and while we were there, we met operations manager Sarah Wild. Now, for our podcast, she introduced us to one of her staff experts, Andrew Schneider. He's an historical interpreter at the Shipwreck Museum. He's extremely well-educated and dedicated to his work at the museum. And he has thoroughly researched the shipwrecks. Andrew, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. Andrew, how long has the Shipwreck Museum been open? So the museum has been open since the mid-1980s. Originally, it was just one building open to the public. It was our Navy radio building with a handful of artifacts that were on display. And uh, as popularity continued to grow, we were able to open up more buildings to the public. Uh, We had our Lighthouse Keepers quarters open up in uh, 1996 and our main museum gallery was open to the public at that time and uh, in the 1990s and 2000s we saw a lot of expansion a lot of the historic buildings that had been actually sold off moved off campus we were able to acquire them we talked with the with the families and we were able to get the uh, buildings back here onto campus the last one being our motor lightboat house back in 2013 so every year that we are continuing to do our operations. We're always doing new and exciting things, and uh, we've had a lot of people come and visit us. It's a popular attraction during the summertime, and um, it's always very exciting the sort of products that we get to participate in, both in the active research we do on the lakes and here on the more interpretive side of things at the museum. Now, the interesting thing is the location. Right. It's located at the Whitefish Point Light Station, the lighthouse, just north of Paradise in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. In the middle of nowhere, yeah. Yeah, over an hour from Sault Ste. Marie, an hour and a half from the Mackinac Bridge. Listen, it's out there. Yeah, no easy way to get there. It takes a long time. Right, absolutely. And it, it, I think part of the beauty of Whitefish Point is that, you know, despite it being so isolated, is that it's, it is a beautiful vista to be up here and to come and visit. And But you, if you can imagine 100 years ago, would it be like to be living up here if you were part of the fishing workers or if you were the lighthouse keepers or with the Coast Guard, you know, it was you, it was your family, the families around you, and that was it. It was this small little community in the middle of nowhere, done on purpose for the sense of strategic placing of this lighthouse and this Coast Guard station. But, you know, you made it work. And nowadays, you know, you get people like, oh, I drove all the way up from Florida or from Texas or wherever that they want to come and visit us from. So we're very honored that people will drive so far, especially out of the way, to come visit us. It it truly feels honorable. But what's really amazing about this is there is an amazing lighthouse here. The museum is fantastic. And on top of that, 
there is a reason for it to be here because this is one of the places in the world that has had the most shipwrecks. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Why have more ships gone down, especially in the Great Lakes, in this area? So Whitefish Point does have a unique history with shipwrecks. The one that we will often talk about is the collisions that take place in this area. And now when you go and come visit us on campus, we have a nice little boardwalk. You can go look on the lake and like, how on earth can ships keep colliding with each other? They've got all the space in the world. But if you look on a map of Lake Superior and how massive the lake is, the reality is that there's only one place most traffic can go. And that's past Whitefish Point. You know, there's a they're forced within this five mile wide shipping lane and you got two lanes of traffic going through. A hundred years ago or so you had more than 60 freighters passing by in a good given day. So it's a very tight channel of navigation going through and especially if the weather is not so good. You know, if you see a ship coming out of the fog right towards you, there's not a whole lot that you can do except kind of brace yourself for impact. Um, you're also talking about in a time that we don't have the ability to uh, see what the weather's going to be like. It's very unpredictable. You might have storms rolling out of nowhere or fog banks that will just roll in and then they just come right on out. For mariners where you only had a barometer to tell what the, the barometric pressure is, it's very difficult to predict, you know, what the weather's going to be like. Let alone if you've got that incentive of we need to make money we need to keep our ships going as quickly as possible so you got you know one lane of traffic that's going out into the lake they're going faster as they are leaving the st mary's river but you have another channel that's coming inbound or excuse me downbound and they're slowing up and that's why we have our lighthouse here is to warn the mariners saying hey you need to slow down and be aware of your surroundings because you got another lane of traffic. You have a busy interstate, if you will, and you need to be mindful of that. And to our west, of course, we have the infamous shipwreck coast, as is, is what's been called. And along our shoreline from here down until the Osabo Point Lighthouse and Grand Marais and Munising, we have a plethora of uh, sand shoals that are underwater, are completely invisible to the average mariner going through. And normally you don't get too close to the shoreline. That's why lighthouses are there to, to warn mariners, don't get too close to us. But in a raging storm, sometimes you are often forced closer to the grounds. Uh, you might end up getting grounded out. Your vessel might get pushed or might break your vessel. And for these mariners going through, the, the biggest difficulty, if you did get shipwrecked, was that you're in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is not a whole lot of civilization up here. I mean, you right. talk about like us being far away as we are now. I mean, imagine yeah. it would be 100 years ago when oh there were gosh. hardly any decent roads that you can travel. I mean... Not only that, but the shorelines are mostly 200-foot cliffs of sandstone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you crash onto the cliffs and you are fortunate to climb up it if you're able to, or you, you just find a little nook and just kind of hide out there. But then otherwise, as we go further east, you're just in the middle of this massive, wide-open, sandy area. I mean, it's beautiful now, but, you know, imagine it in the middle of the fall where you've got, you know, blinding snow gales. You're in, you know, 20, 30 knot winds that are piercing through the heaviest of clothing. You're going to succumb to the elements. Most mariners would just usually end up succumbing to the pure cold than they would be the actual 
drowning itself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's yeah. where we get into our story of the U.S. Life Saving Service, what we now refer to as the U.S. Coast Guard, is that you have these manned stations strategically along our shorelines that are there to get these mariners into the safety of their buildings, to warm you back up, to get you out of that water, to get you out of your, your wet clothes, and to warm you up to save your life. Right. Obviously, the cargo is important as well, but humans come first, you know. And I well, love, we'd like to think that. Yeah. We'd like to think, yes. <laughs> All right. You come to the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum. What are you going to see? Well, here on campus, you're going to be able to go into five of our buildings. Our main gallery has a plethora of shipwreck artifacts from around this area. We highlight a couple of them in particular, those due to collisions. But of course, we have the bell from the Edmund Fitzgerald, along with the model and the newt suit that was used to go onto the wreck site to get the bell from the wreck, along with the beautiful second-order Fresnel lens and some lighthouse keeping equipment. You'll also be able to go through the Navy Radio Building. That's where we met in. And uh, in that, we have a couple exhibits about how we find and document shipwrecks, because that's the other half of our societies. We do a lot of active research. I got to work as a volunteer deckhand last year, and that was a lot of fun to do that. Uh, and then we also talk about the Dan J. Morrell in a little bit of detail. And that was a shipwreck that we also talk about in the main gallery, but we put an emphasis because we knew the survivor, Dennis Hale, pretty well as a historical society, and he was pretty close with us until he passed in 2015. And so as part of a promise that our director, Bruce Lynn, made with Barbara Hale, the artifact that we received, that we will be opening an exhibit, and the family members will be the first ones to see it. And so in August, we last August, we opened up an exhibit that showcased this, and it was it's a really very nicely done exhibit. Yeah. There's also the Lighthouse Keeper's Quarters, and there we give a bit of a demonstration, or rather to highlight the responsibilities of a lighthouse keeper. What did you actually do while you're stationed here? But we also try to paint a picture about life as a lighthouse keeper, and how isolated that must have been. But you know, what a day-to-day life kind of look like and while it's not perfect you know we have little guide rails for modern day lighting and there's a the flat screen that shows you where the ships are currently at it, it helps to inspire you to think about to put yourself into the mind of the Carlson family who we pay particular attention to uh, and to be living on that station we also then have the Coast Guard surf boat house that talks about the history of the US life saving service I've been talking about and uh, and while we never had a life saving station here at Whitefish Point our nearest station was uh, Vermilion Point Life Saving Station, about 10 miles down the beach from Whitefish Point, and they're still a very important part of our story here at Whitefish Point. And there's actually an organization that we are part of, of SOS Vermilion. Uh, it's a group that's trying to restore one of the historic structures that's on site, mm-hmm. and we're very excited to be a part of that project because that is very much part of our story here. So we pay homage to the Coast Guard and the foundations of the Coast Guard in that building. And then lastly, we have our Motor Lifeboat House that has a 15-minute film that talks about our expedition that we did in 1995 to recover the bell from the Edmund Fitzgerald. That is a great video. Yeah, and this museum is part of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society. Now, this organization has a really great story. Oh, yeah. Right, and I think that really is prevalent to the foundations of the Historical Society. You know, we were, in the 1970s, we were, first and foremost, a diving research group, if you will, that was out of this area, and that would be our previous executive director, Tom Farnquist, and the group of divers that would go onto these shipwrecks and to discover a lot of the shipwrecks in this area, and it's a mission that we continue to do so today with the Daryl Artell and his brother Dan Artell, and many 
many of our staff members as well are part of that diving operation. Not as much diving, I should say, the research operations. Um, we used to do a lot more diving with the society. Now it's we use remote operated vehicles. So when we are going to look for shipwrecks, we'll put a, uh, a side sonar scanner down. We'll have it follow our research vessel, the David Boyd. And if we see something on the bottom of the lake, like, oh, that looks particularly interesting. We'd like to take a deeper look. Then we'll send a remote operated vehicle down there, ROV, and to see if it is a shipwreck or not. We, oftentimes we're looking for a name to confirm that, yes, this is the ship that we're looking for. Or, <laughs> oh, it's just a clay bank. This happened when I went out last year. They're like, oh, we think we found something. No, it's just a clay bank. It was cool to see, though. Wait, uh, what's a clay bank? It's something that we were still trying to figure out what exactly it was. But it looked like a shipwreck from the from the surface, but it was this massive, like, almost drop of clay at the bottom of this oh, lake. I mean, okay. Think of the geological side of Lake Superior, too. Yeah. It was quite interesting. So a lot of the work and efforts that we do is obviously we document and we interpret the difficulties of the mariner's life, you know, and as part of our national heritage as being devoted to the industrial side of it and rather uh, through these ships and the mariners who have lost their lives. And it's important that we talk about that while talking about those who bravely attempted rescue from the Coast Guard at Life Saving Service and those who maintained the equipment used in helping mariners going through that with the lighthouse keepers wow. and the Navy. So it's a lot of ground to cover, but we're very thankful to do so and continue to get a lot of support. This museum does a lot of amazing things. And hasn't there been over 6,000 shipwrecks on the Great Lakes? Yes, there have been about 6,000 shipwrecks across all of our Great Lakes. The majority of shipwrecks that have occurred are between the 1880s and the 1920s. That's at the, I don't know if you want to call it the the, the zenith of all things shipping on the Great Lakes, between mm-hmm. iron ore and even just passenger traffic going through. But that that, that turn of the century was, you know, the, the biggest point was we see a lot of shipwrecks occurring. And the most well-known shipwreck is actually 17 miles from here. That's right, 17 miles from where we're actually sitting. The Edmund Fitzgerald. Yeah. Broken in half in 500 feet of water. Andrew, what happened? Well, it's a difficult question to ask because, um, I'll be very frank to say that we truly will never know what happened. Mm -hmm. There are a multitude of theories that are proposed and brought forward. And the reality of the situation is that we can come close to ideas of like, this is the most plausible theory. But the reality is that, you know, there were no witnesses to what happened. On the Arthur Man Anderson, while they were falling behind, it was a snow gale, right? At that moment, they completely blocked out the Fitzgerald, um, so they didn't see what happened. Uh, there were no survivors on the Edmund Fitzgerald. What the, time of the day was it? Was it at night? Was it dark out? Yes, it was 7, 10 p.m., so okay. in November, so mm-hmm. it would be pretty dark by that particular yeah. point, so visibility uh-huh. would be low. You would still have the lights of the vessel itself, but even then, in a blinding snow gale, we impossible to see a ship that's almost 10 miles in front of us and tremendous amount of wind Uh, oh it's 100 mile an hour winds uh, up to yes i mean we're talking about gusts up to 90 miles an hour and so it's a very dangerous night to be up there we're talking waves up to 30 feet up did um, he accidentally get caught in it or how did he not know the weather was coming or that it was going to do that well both 
Captain McSorley and Captain Cooper were pretty well aware of the situation. Um, this is actually pretty standard practice by a lot of the Mariners in the Great Lakes is that they we actually knew that there was going to be a front, a really bad storm going on to the lake. They had been tracking it since Oklahoma. They oh. thought it was going to go all the way up through uh, Wisconsin and up into the lake, and it's going to be able to go out through there. Uh-huh. And so it, it was pretty normal practice that these captains knew what to do. These are ships that are built to withstand pretty severe storms. Right. So what they ended up doing in this instance is like, okay, we're going to be encountering bad waves and bad storms. What we're going to do is we're going to take a very northerly route. Most ships have a prescribed, if you will, prescribed route uh, that takes them from the west side of the lake to the east side of the lake. It's pretty common practice in storms that you sometimes you might have to deviate off that route in order to find better protection and or shelter from the shoreline, the lee of the shore is what we would say. So both the Fitzgerald and the Anderson took a very northerly route fall along the Canadian coastline. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it might just be very bad timing with the storm that they were still caught in it. They hoped that they would be able to beat it or if anything, ride out the storm. Mm-hmm. But the fact of it is that there were no you know, eyewitness survivors from the Fitzgerald really does does make the entire story difficult to be able to solve. I, I always like, and I always bring this up with my interpretation too, that I think people are very interested in the story because of the fact it's a mystery. If right. you if you know how a story starts in the middle of it and how it ends, this is Sherlock Holmes I'm talking about, that if you know a full-on story, it's going to be a good story, but you know how it ends. But when there are a few things that are missing, it strikes your imagination forward. You start thinking of various scenarios. Well, it could be this, or it could be that. It could be this thing that we haven't even thought about. And so everyone comes forward with their theories and their thoughts because everyone's imaginations are absolutely fully charged up trying to think of what it might be. But the reality is is that there's nothing to confirm that with. You know, when we talk of the stories of the Carl D. Bradley and about the Daniel J. Morrell, we had survivors. We had Earl Fleming and Frank Mays from the Bradley, and we had Dennis Hale from the Morrell to say, this is what happened. The ship broke up on the surface. This is what happened in that instance. We don't have that but the Fitzgerald. So we have to postulate as best as we can. Even the Coast Guard, the National Safety and Transportation Board, in their investigations, there was a lot of it. They said like there's a lot of information missing because we don't have the logbooks. We don't have we don't have an eyewitness account. So a lot of this we're gonna to have to kinda of go off the best of our abilities. With. Are they surprised that it actually broke apart? I guess if it was an older freighter it would I don't want to say it would be expected, but there's a certain there would be a certain concern if it was a much older freighter, like the like the Morel, for example, was it about it was in service for about sixty odd years when it broke up. So this is an older freighter uh, with a brittle steel fracture. But the Fitzgerald, when it went down, was about nineteen years old. This is a, that's a relatively newer. Yeah. Um, it's a newer vessel onto the fleet, and I think that's another part of the mystery. Is you know why did this newer designed vessel? with you know ductile steel which is supposed to be a lot more durable than the brittle steel how you know why did this break up when the anderson falling right behind that was able to make it through mm-hmm. now a lot of the eyewitness account not a lot of this people who are on the anderson said that we barely made it through a lot wow. of them said that at one point we're talking about a 40 degree tilt to one side like we didn't think we were going to make it wow so let alone what the fitzgerald was going through right yeah. and the fitzgerald was listing they said This is really interesting because you've mentioned that these ships do bend and 
kind of twist a little bit. There's some give and take in the structure, right? Right, and the especially these ships that were built um, in the 1950s on where they were designed to have that flexibility. Um, because if your ship is too rigid, as it goes into the middle of the storms, water has a lot of energy. If you got waves that are pounding it and trying to kind of force your ship, eventually it's that ship's going to give way. But if you give it a little wiggle room, it's going to be able to ride that storm out a little bit better. And you can see videos of people that will look down the ship as it's in a storm and it'll just be this like little caterpillar sort of yeah. wave. But it's designed to do that. Mm-hmm. The Edmund Fitzgerald was, it wasn't lengthened but it was made longer than a normal ship. Right. At the time that it had been launched, it was the biggest and longest vessel on the Great Lakes. And there are some who postulate that perhaps there was an issue of the design that might have factored into what had particularly happened. Um, the concern of extrapolating um, a particular design of a vessel. If we remember the events of the Boeing 767 MAX incident, in which the engines were enlarged, but there was no additional wing support given in the plane would stall, there are some who are concerned that by lengthening the ship without giving it further hull support might have caused some difficulties. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, that's, I, I think the reality of the situation is that it's not one thing that causes to say, ah, there it is, right. I found it. It's going to be, it's a series of events that lead up. Exactly. My, my favorite show when I was growing up was called Seconds from Disaster. And oh. they always talk about it's not one thing that does it. It's a series of events that lead up to tragedies. And the Fitzgerald is a, is a perfect example of that. When we study maritime disasters, like the Titanic as well, or the Lusitania, these are it, disasters don't happen with one event. They're a multitude. So when we talk about the Fitzgerald of like, oh, what's the one thing that caused it? It's like, it's probably not one thing. It's a multitude of things. Yeah. It was that interesting it. that Captain Cooper on the Anderson reported some really huge waves, mm-hmm. one after another, boom, boom. And he said that they were headed towards the Fitzgerald. So, right, and what he's talking about is there's a tale amongst some mariners of the Wicked Three Sisters, and these are a set of three humongous waves on the lakes that will take any ship down. And on the night that the Fitzgerald went down, he was greatly concerned because the Anderson got rocked by these two huge waves. And he was concerned that it was their head right for the Fitzgerald that they might cause it to dunk because if you have a ship that's already leaning on the forward, is already leaning downwards, if you're getting pushed from the stern upwards from one, let alone you get another one, this absolutely can shove you downwards. Right. What he was saying with that one is that those waves might have done it in that the forward of the ship had dunked down and then that second wave came through and just completely dunked it and compromised the buoyancy of that vessel. Right. Yeah. It's difficult to say that, oh, the buoyancy gave out just like that. I mean, even amongst you know the top-notch naval submarines, they don't sink that quickly, like five minutes. But there's a bit of a doubt, a bit of reality that they probably dunked underwater and then just never came back. This out. is an incredible story. Yeah, and what's even more interesting is the fact that the museum helped recover the ship's mm-hmm. bell and they replaced it with one that has all the crew members' names. And the original bell is right here in this museum. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Right. As part of our 1995 expedition, and actually leading up to that expedition, there was a lot of call by the family members for something to be brought up from the Fitzgerald. And, and there was a lot of back and forth of the family. Someone, one of the wrecks to be left alone. It's a graveyard, and it still is a graveyard. We just leave it alone. But there's some family members that said, we want something from the wreck sites to act as a permanent memorial for the men that they had lost. 
and some of them wanted the rec site to be closed. And they were concerned that by taking up the bell from the rec site, it's going to be open season for shipwreck hunters to go in and take stuff. I'll remind our audience that the shipwreck is in Canadian waters. And at this point in the 90s, uh, there is the Freshwater Protection Act of 1987 in Michigan that protected shipwrecks. But there was nothing really yet on the Canadian side. It's 500 feet below. How many divers are going to even go to that? And that's part of the, the difficulty with the Fitzgerald is that it's logistically very difficult for most divers to get down there. Yeah. You need to have advanced equipment in order to get onto the wreck site. And so the family members wanted something to be brought up from the wreck site. And uh, we were able to make an agreement to say that once that we bring up this bell, that that's going to be it, that no one can go onto the wreck site. And that's, that's going to be it. It's going to be closed. And so in 1995, we did this expedition, and w- which we were able to work alongside National Oceanic and a variety of people who have submersible experience. They were able to go in these submersibles down onto the wreck site and were able to find the bell and they were able to bring it back up. They were able to, um, it, especially with the innovations of the newt suit, this was a pretty new piece of technology that allowed a diver to do very technical work at a very deep level. Diving equipment has come a long way and the newt suit, to me, it looks like something an astronaut would wear. Right, yeah, if you want to visualize it, it's this big yellow NASA suit with kind of robotic looking arms. Obviously, you're not putting your fingers out with that depth, so that would be yeah. that would be way too much pressure to be that tactile, but there's little claws at the end of it that you're able to uh, maneuver and be able to cut off the metal bit so you can be able to get the bell off and then bring it back up to the surface and in its place put a, a bell with the names of the men that were lost which they were able to put it on the ship itself and since then no one has been down to the wreck site uh, once we brought the bell back up it was actually brought downstate uh, with the conservatory as affiliated with michigan state university at the time in which the bell was restored was given a protective seal and then brought back up here to whitefish point it was the desire of the fan members to have the memorial be here at whitefish point they didn't want it in detroit or milwaukee or toledo it was here this is the close one of the closest spots that fitzgerald was at the time that it was lost needless to say it is an unbelievable wreck an unbelievable Mm -hmm. story Mm -hmm. and this is a great place to come and learn about it and learn about all the shipwrecks it's amazing be about 17 miles away from it fascinating the great lake shipwreck museum in whitefish point michigan Andrew, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you and thank so you for much. having me on. It's a pleasure to be able to get to talk with you guys. And uh, for anyone listening, we are open from May 1st until the end of October. Come up to come visit us. And we look forward to seeing you soon and share some maritime heritage with you folks. No so, doubt about yeah. it. Thank you for also, having me on. <laughs> a very big thank you to operations manager, Sarah Wild. Yes, thank you, Sarah. <laughs> we really appreciate <laughs> yeah. it. I think we have it all. Okay, so I just want to say one more thing. When Andrew talked about the museum here, he left out one of the buildings. Oh, which building? The gift shop. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a gift shop here if anybody wants to It's when a they good come. gift shop, too. It is. It's great. It is a wonderful gift shop. It's our our wonderful. museum store operation manager, Sarah Jacques, does a fantastic job with that. I didn't include that because I was just talking about the buildings that had right. a ticket. You don't need a ticket to go to the gift shop unless you go buy something. You know, oh, that's... <laughs> okay. Okay, great. <laughs> but they do a wonderful job with it. Yeah. So, yes, come visit the gift shop. Andrew, thanks again. Thank yeah, you thank you so, so much for much. having me. <laughs> you were incredible. Gosh. Thank you. I appreciate it. So I always love getting to talk about 
all things shipwrecks and to help to um, promote the society and what we do here. And, and we're very proud of our maritime heritage as Michiganders. And it's something that should be preserved. So we're happy to be a part of it and through my studies and what we do here. So The Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum in Whitefish Point, Michigan. Put it on your bucket list. I'll tell you, if I could, I'd go back there right now. Oh, I would too, but we can't because we have to be in Cleveland on Wednesday, July 13th for a meetup at the Music Box Supper Club. Come meet us for a night of stories and fun. It'll be a lot of fun. General RV is going to be there with an awesome RV. You can tour that. And the Muskegon Watershed Conservancy District will be there too with their amazing portfolio of Ohio campgrounds. I'm really looking forward to seeing everyone. Yeah. Until next time, have yourself a great week. Oh, by the way, Jeff, no dinner tonight. What are you talking about? We got steaks. Well, we gotta lose some weight. We're gonna be on stage. What are you, you? You look great. Oh well, actually, I'm talking about you. What? It's the Rockin' the RV Life podcast with Jeff and Patty. Hear more of their adventures on the road with our next episode. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell your friends.